Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. What you know about rolling down in the deep when you this is not how I usually start a podcast, but this is a TikTok that I was sent earlier this week. The song is called Astronaut in the Ocean, and it is originally sung by The Masked Wolf. But in this TikTok video, it's Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who appears to be singing. His lips mouth the lyrics perfectly as his head bobs from side to side. Of course, it's not really him. This is a deepfake video designed to elicit a few laughs. Deepfake technology is a bit like Photoshop for videos. It allows users to superimpose or stitch someone else's likeness into a video and manipulate their movements. There are apps readily available that allow users to superimpose their face onto those of famous people and reenact famous movie scenes. But while the technology is being used for a bit of fun, it has a far more sinister side. Deepfakes are being used to spread disinformation, to put words into people's mouths, usually those of politicians and they're becoming harder to detect. As the technology develops, deepfakes will have serious consequences on who and what we can trust, which will no doubt impact politics and society around the world. To get a better sense of how this technology is being used, I spoke with Mark Little, a former journalist and founder of Dublin-based media startup Kinzen, whose technology helps to identify deepfakes and other forms of misinformation and disinformation. Mark, thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. We're interested in fake news uh, and how that's evolved over the years and how technology is being used to alter the truth out there, particularly on, on social media platforms. And now with deep fakes also emerging, I'm keen to trace the impact of that. So uh, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what fake news is and how it has been evolving over the past few years? Yeah, so I think it's very important to begin picking our words carefully because I think um, in the community that I'd be involved in, we, we, we talk very much about misinformation and disinformation. Um, I think the, the phrase fake news has been so weaponized by a lot, a lot of, you know, essentially autocrats who have used fake news as a way to essentially crack down on dissent. So right now, one of the biggest threats we have is that many autocratic rulers and uh, governments who want to sort of shore up their own power are using that phrase fake news essentially to apply it to any form of dissent. And we're seeing a lot of these anti-fake news laws around the world. So, you know, Donald Trump took that word and turned it into his own political mantra. So we try to avoid that, that phrase and we try to replace it with, with more exact phrases to describe different things that are happening right now. So, for example, misinformation is that general state of disbelief, <laughs> this general state that people share things without really checking. Um, you've got family, people in your family or friends network that sends you WhatsApp messages or YouTube videos that are completely in, inaccurate. They're probably not acting from a, a place of uh, political design. They're not trying to promote a political agenda. They're just sharing things that are wrong. People saying crazy stuff on the internet will always be there. What I think we should focus on a lot is disinformation. And that is essentially deceptive content, you know, deceptive networks, whether that's text, content, video, audio, whatever, designed to create a real world impact. And the kind of people behind this kind of disinformation uh, are obviously sometimes, again, states promoting uh, fake and manipulated media and synthetic media in order to promote their own agendas and this, you know, create disunity. Second, it's obviously uh, political actors, political parties, but also an increasing amount, would you believe, of corporations who are trying to promote disinformation to, for example, undermine uh, the authority of people that might be pushing a climate agenda. And then there's also, also these decentralized networks of hate groups. And disinformation is kind of like a connective tissue. That is, you know, going through all of these various campaigns, whether it's Decentralized networks like QAnon in the US, anti-vax networks across the world, hate groups, neo-Nazi groups in Europe. Um, and they are all connected now by this language of disinformation, which now increasingly incorporates deep fakes and synthetic media. So that's just, I would think, to set the de definitions, which help us then focus on the real threat 
while then saying, you know, it's a problem of this, of misinformation is a problem, but disinformation, deception at an organized level, uh, that's what I think we should be really scared of. It, it's incredibly vast. What you've described is encompasses almost every aspect of, of life uh, and the information that we come across on all platforms. I mean, your company tries to uh, find a solution for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about Kinzen and, and what you guys do? Yeah, I mean, certainly seeing it myself, I was a, for, a foreign correspondent for 20 years, worked for the Irish National TV station. And uh, by 2009, uh, I, I covered, for example, Iran was the country that I loved most traveling to in terms of like covering it as a political correspondent. It was fascinating. And there was the, uh, you might remember 2009, the so-called Green Revolution, which was essentially covered by Twitter, not by foreign correspondents. So I created a company called Storyful. We were the first social news agency. And we came across the first wave of disinformation during the Arab Spring, when we started to see, um, you know, both people on the dissident side and people on the, the, you know, the, the regime side creating false narratives as a form of political propaganda. It was kind of like an information war. And in this first wave of disinformation, the wartime analogy was actually quite accurate, right? So there were people fighting a battle and the new battlefield was social media. And it was a battle between two sides that we could see battling it out. Now, the second wave of disinformation is far more sinister. And that's when people realize that the best way to promote your own cause was not to try to persuade people on social media that you were telling the truth. The best way of promoting your cause was persuade everybody that everybody is telling lies. It's what we call the liar's dividend. That's the, the phrase we're starting to use. And that's the more sinister type of viral disinformation. And in so many ways, we should not be using wartime metaphors, but I think we should look at public health crisis as a way of describing this. And to look at the pandemic, COVID, as a very similar parallel uh, to the infodemic, which essentially is uh, groups finding ways to uh, exploit the lack of immunity that we have online uh, and make people believe generally that everyone's telling us lies. And that makes it so much easier for them to promote in this viral way, beginning with bot networks, uh, continuing on with decentralized movements on these fringe platforms like 4chan and telegram and now today i think the rise of synthetic media is the, is the latest um, variant let's put it that way or mutant strain of the virus uh, that we're seeing and it's obviously extremely sinister and extremely powerful has this belief that everybody is lying always existed throughout human history, throughout wars? And it, it, I think it has to an extent. I mean, you've, you know, look back on the, the promotion of the big lie, you know, that, that's always been a feature of history. What's different now, and this is the core of the problem of disinformation, is that humanity has never been forced to cope with such an overabundance of information. So the sheer volume of information coming at us every day makes it impossible for the ordinary person to sort out truth from fiction. Now, in the old days, we had gatekeepers who told us this is a lie and this is truth. And we knew who they were. They were, you know, journalists. They were given a title. They had power. They had a control over the means of production. It was very scarce supply. Now, in this era of the algorithm distributing information where the gatekeeper, the old journalist networks are kind of destroyed, there is nobody we can trust uh, beside our friends and family to tell us what is true and what's not. But the problem is the friends and family networks are also themselves being manipulated by people who understand the algorithms and the virality of information. So, for example, Kinzen, uh, the successor to the work that I've done at Storyful, I also work for Twitter. I was a head of media partnerships for Europe uh, there. So I learned a lot about inside the platform. And what Kinzen's trying to do is match good old fashioned editorial expertise, kind of like the old gatekeepers, with the latest cutting edge machine learning techniques that can help us detect the telltale signs of disinformation, not just in English or in the United States, but in every language. And rapid advances in natural language processing, which is one of the key areas of AI, are helping us understand the language that can, the telltale sign that somebody is organizing a campaign of deception. And so that's been very effective. Uh, in all formats, 
Um, but we're obviously considering then the next stage, the next variant of which synthetic media clearly uh, is a really difficult one to grapple with because we're used to finding things in text, but video and audio, um, text in video, synthetic media, there's so many ways now on so many dimensions uh, to destroy that sort of trust that we have in, in the gatekeeper and, and most importantly in our own friends and family, our own networks, our own abilities uh, to believe that we have the capacity to find the, the signal and the noise. What are the telltale signs? How are people being manipulated to believe a certain fact in quotation marks? Yeah, so it starts out, you know, the vast majority of us will never be hijacked by, by these campaigns, right? The vast majority of us, believe it or not, do actually have a lot of diverse sources. Um, you know, they don't necessarily help us cope with the overwhelming uh, abundance. A minority of us will then be targeted and radicalized by networks that find that we have some vulnerability. So, for example, the people most prone to become radicalized by misinformation, disinformation, tend to have some, some existing disconnect with society or with the people around them, whether that's they've lost their job or they're alienated from society or they already have some predisposed reason because of their health or their background to mistrust information and elites. And they're the people that are most vulnerable. And like the virus, the virus finds people whose immune systems are already depleted. And so what I think the biggest fear for us is that these campaigns of disinformation use language to exploit existing biases. So, for example, a good example happened last year that was so out of the ordinary, we were just all stunned by it. A lot of people will go on Instagram to find people that will help them uh, do better yoga, you know, do better uh, mindfulness and those communities are full of people that are looking to live a better life that are looking to optimize or overcome stress or overcome some problem in their life and they're quite vulnerable to people coming along going hey did you know that vaccines are bad for you and that your health could be destroyed and and so what the disinformation warriors if i can put it that way it's probably the wrong way of putting it but the people spreading the disinformation were going into comment sections and dropping in like hashtags and words that were like dog whistles. They weren't visible or audible to most ordinary people, but to people that were already predisposed to being skeptical. Um, they were like these glutenate nations. They brought people together. So believe it or not, yoga movement on Instagram was hijacked by QAnon, who obviously found people who had some existing vulnerability uh, or skepticism or bias that went to let them go down the rabbit hole and then the algorithm takes over. So, you know, you're skeptical, for example, about fluoride in water. Well, your next video is be skeptical about the 5G virus, 5G um, network or the, the vaccine. And slowly you're down a rabbit hole. And before you know it, your reality is 100 percent different from the reality of your neighbor your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, and sometimes your spouse. And that's the way these networks prey on people who have some existing vulnerability, weakness, or lack of uh, immunity. Um, and that's where these disinformation networks create real world harm, like we saw in the United States, or we're currently seeing with the anti-vaxxers who are you know, increasing skepticism about the vaccines, even as we know they're desperately needed. The way to look at AI as a general force at the moment is we, we have, a, I think, in this first wave of understanding of AI, the public understanding of it, we think it's like a god. It's a godlike entity. It's imposed upon us, has a mind of its own. And will, it's not. AI is a child, and it's trained by human beings. Now, the first wave of AI that was trained by these big platforms was trained, like you say, to recognize emotion and reward emotion. And it's part of the biases that we have built into our brain. I mean, we want to see stuff that is like what we believe already. We want to see the latest. Um, so it obviously the first wave of algorithms were designed to exploit that vulnerability. This next wave of AI that I hopefully is what we're part of in, in Kinzen, and I think a lot of people believe it or not inside the platforms are thinking about is how do we unpick this? So the way I would describe this is comparison to 2008. If you remember, it was these like credit default swaps and these derivative products that were a bit like they were algorithms and people had lost control of them. They, they had literally, they didn't know how they worked anymore and they brought down the financial system. Similarly, right now in our information system, the first wave of algorithms 
that were designed to maximize outrage are starting to create an unsustainable collapse in the information system. And I think a lot of people inside the platforms, and I think regulators are looking at this as well, we're trying to you know, encourage these platforms to think about programming AI that rewards quality, that has basic filters, that can start to recognizing using NLP the telltale signs that a piece of content has been manufactured, manipulated, or in some way primed to exploit the, the weaknesses of individuals. So it's a little like, you know, the immune system. We developed solutions to things like smallpox by injecting people with a little bit of the virus to create an immunity. And I think the similar way right now, for, for our company at least, is unpicking the damage of the last AI, we're building new AI to spot the ways in which this virus works, recognize it in language. Um, so for example, as I say, these dog whistles we talk about, uh, they may be a hashtag like MAGA. You remember, make America great again. That became a dog whistle when you saw it. It was a way of identifying people and it was their way of navigating around. And so we, on a very sophisticated scale, are starting to understand the way language is used, uh, we're starting to listen uh, to transcripts of audio and video, so we've got a better scale. We can now listen to millions of pieces of audio and start to look for the language in there because the AI has been reprogrammed. We have trained the child in a different way. So what, what happens with this new information that's being fed into the algorithm? And that's the key, right? In all machine learning, garbage in, garbage out. The, the model is only ever as good as the data you put in. And so there's the emergence of new human in the loop systems of AI. And what that means is we give smaller but higher quality bodies of data to the machine to train it for a very specific purpose, rather than what the platforms generally do when they're trying to train their machinery to protect against the online harm, like copyright infringement or spam. They like take vast amounts of data and throw it in there with all the biases and accuracies. What we do is we use humans to label and annotate and classify a small body of data to train the machine for a very specific task. And that's the new wave, I think, of solutions that are developing um, to disinformation are these human in the loop systems, at which point human beings have an absolutely vital role at every stage uh, instead of allowing the AI to go off and learn and, and be full of bias. So that's the current way in which um, this new generation of companies like ours are approaching um, this, this virus. We're trying to essentially create the immunities and, and show people when they're being manipulated. So it's AI versus AI in many ways. Yeah, we work with content moderators and trust and safety teams inside these platforms. We also work with public health communicators. So, you know, in Ireland, for example, we're working to identify uh, every day, uh, what kind of anti-vax narratives are coming to, to Ireland to, to uh, potentially undermine faith in the vaccine program. With the platforms, what we're trying to do is say, hey, we're going to watch every language, every platform, and we're going to give you early warning um, of, of trends that are emerging, new narratives, new language, uh, new ways in which networks are starting to unite. Um, and, and it's incredible that the range now that the big platforms have made big efforts and, and I think big progress in some of the big narratives. The problem is because we're now living our lives online much more, even in the past year because of the lockdowns, we are now exposed in every aspect of our online life. We go and buy a book, when we go to our fitness club online, when you know we're in a marketplace buying stuff, in the comment sections, everywhere. There are people now who've worked out that, that they can spread their message far and wide because the internet now is so much more a part of our life. So this problem is getting worse before it gets better. And what we're trying to do is give these platforms early warning um, of, of things that are happening in places they're not currently looking at. But also, I think increasingly, you know, these platforms are very American centric. They speak English. They don't probably understand uh, what is going on for someone who's coming online in uh, Addis Ababa or in Shanghai or Shenzhen or you know, even in Dublin, Ireland. And so we're trying to make them much more internationally aware uh, that this information is very much an international phenomenon, but it's also very local. It hijacks local culture. It exploits divisions that are not apparent to 
people outside that country, that language, and even language. You know, I mean, think about Arabic. Someone in, in you know, Cairo is speaking a very different Arabic uh, to somewhere, someone in the other parts of the Arab world. So, you know, those are the things at the moment where the platforms are not particularly well equipped and we're trying to help them become much more international um, to learn new languages quite literally and also then to sort of explore areas where we haven't been before, like audio, real-time conversations that are happening in platforms like Clubhouse. So there are so many new frontiers, and what Kinzen is essentially doing is helping them build systems where, where their trusted flagger is what they describe us as, uh, which is part of the language actually of the new regulations coming in Europe, where a third party um, groups like ourselves will be part of the, uh, the sort of the wider ecosystem these platforms will rely on. So that's the hope uh, as it evolves over the coming years. Let's talk about deepfakes. It's still relatively new technology. I think a lot of people who see it can recognize that it, it's not real. But, you know, the t- technology has improved vastly and it will very likely get to a point where average person won't be able to recognize what's, what's synthetic media and, and what's actually real footage. What are the implications if we don't have regulations around it now, if we don't act upon it now? Will it get to the same level of disinformation that we've seen with text? Absolutely. I think it has. My, my biggest fear with, with deepfakes particularly is that it will just increase what I call the liar's dividend, right? So if you think, for example, when we saw the George Floyd in the United States, that case where we saw a video uh, of an African-American man being held on the ground for nine minutes and dying in front of our eyes on a video. And we all thought to ourselves, well, pictures don't lie. You know, the old famous word, you know, the, the famous aphorism. So we might like be suspicious about a piece of text that arrives in a WhatsApp message. But when I watch that video as a human being growing up in this era, I'm, I'm, this is truth. Now, can you imagine as already has happened? We've had members of the right wing of the United States, even elected officials calling into doubt the veracity of that video, accusing the uh, Black Lives Matter movement of faking the video. Now, there's an example of, of where the liar's dividend is so effective. It may not be that the deep fake video is a deep fake. It doesn't matter anymore because now we have lost faith in video. We have lost faith in what we can see with our eyes. And therefore, it is much easier now for these campaigns of disinformation, even if they're not using the deep fake technology and the generative AI that's behind it, uh, to just say, no, I don't believe you. But I've just shown you examples and footage of an example of what's happening. I don't believe you. This is deep fake. So just like fake news was used by autocrats to fight back against people who are calling you know, out disinformation, the same will happen here. So deep fake by just its very existence casts doubt on everything. The second major problem is in the technology behind it. So, for example, GPT-3, which is a wonderful explosion of open source technology that allows people to generate text and audio and and various videos. There's no regulation around its application. There's no regulation around, you know, adversarial networks where we've seen examples, for example, of Chinese related um, propaganda campaigns where just automatically generating um, profile pictures that made it look more believable that that account on Twitter was sharing something trustworthy it was a fake profile pic. So it's not just the core content, but all the other metadata around an account on, let's say, Twitter can be essentially a deep fake at a fundamental level. And so really what's impossible right now, we just don't have the technology to find out when technology is mimicking humans. And that's what my, my greatest technological fear is, that this is potentially... Uh, for the next couple of years uncontrollable like another wildfire it is absolutely terrifying the fact that you're telling me that we don't have the technology that identifies whether something is fake or not i mean i i can't really wrap my head around it it is absolutely terrifying i think the way to describe it is it's, it's not impossible to find the technology that can do this but let's just say if you remember the bots around 2016 what was news to most of us was that there were tens of thousands of fake accounts promoting trends on on platforms like Facebook and and Twitter. We're in a similar moment now where we're not equipped because our current technology is is detecting things like spam or pornography, and that's facial recognition and that's tone. Everything's been designed almost to solve commercial problems. 
But the idea of like, fi- you know, finding, so it's like a human has to train a machine to spot a machine that's been trained by a human. So there's so many elements in that. And that, that is really the wicked problem for deep fakes. I don't think AI by itself um, can never have uh, an automated filter to detect a deep fake. But I think human in the loop systems, where essentially what we're doing is we're, you know, looking out for telltale signs, shutter speeds, other metadata associated, for example, with the accounts. That's where we're going to fight back against deep fakes. So, um, you know, ways, for example, that we've now projects called Project Origin, which is sponsored by Microsoft and the BBC and New York Times, which is trying to persuade um, all news organizations to attach metadata to quality content to prevent it from being manipulated. So relying solely on an automated filter uh, through AI to beat AI is never going to work. The only way we can fight back is to spot the other telltale signs, the metadata attached uh, through human in the loop systems and creating international standards so that the source of the metadata, the content itself, we know where it came from. And this is one of the biggest problems. Deepfakes sometimes take a respectable news outlet like the BBC and manipulate something about that video. And it just looks like a real authoritative source. And so part of the solution here will be making sure that that BBC content, that quality piece of content is tamper proof. Um, and I think that's part of the solution. So I know it's scary. It'll never be just AI versus AI, and we're going to beat the system that way. There's going to have to be a, a whole investigation of that sort of layer of metadata. Is that going to increase the rise of NFTs? Well, see, this is where the decentralization of the internet is quite interesting. Like, let's just take a step back for a moment. There's, I always think about history happens in threes, right? There's a a revolution, a counter-revolution, and then the end of it all, we, we get some sort of stability. So in this case, when the internet arrived, and for me at 2008 and 2009, it was liberation, right? It was freedom. If you think about what was happening on Tahrir Square back in 2010, we were allowing democratic voices to emerge without anybody dictating who was heard or not. And that was very liberating. Here comes everybody. It was a famous phrase from that first wave. Now then the people who are the, this, you know, the, the autocrats and, and the enemies of democracy realized that they could take this place over and spread lies. Now this, this third wave, I think, is decentralization, where potentially blockchain te- technologies allow us to put a stamp the moment a piece of content is created, make it a, an asset, obviously, for monetization. That's why NFTs are so uh, fascinating. You know, could that be the new monetization model for quality news and information? But most importantly, it allows the creator of the content to say, here's a stamp. Here's a, you know, this, this can't be broken by the enemy of democracy. And when that piece of content travels through the ecosystem, it can never be tampered with. We always know where it came from. If it's used by somebody else, there has to be a chain in the, you know, in, in the, there has to be some sort of link in the chain that can be identified. So I am actually quite hopeful that, I'm not saying blockchain is the solution, there's been too many, you know, problems that have been, uh, that's been attached to, but the decentralization of power to the individual digital citizen and the creator is the greatest hope we have of fighting back, is to essentially create a kind of collective immunity um, to these viruses uh, by having everyone know what's completely transparent about the system that they're part of. And that's, I think, um, the broader solution here. But we're still years away, I think, from having a kind of a, an information system where everybody knows what's going on. A great first step would be for governments and, and international bodies to think about a system similar to food labeling, where when we see a piece of information, we've got metadata attached that tells everybody exactly what's in it you know a bit like this is heavy on the protein or heavy on the carbs this piece of content has telltale signs of manipulation this piece of content is from a quality source and i think there's a system there where ai can support some very progressive regulation to allow complete transparency about the kind of media content 
that we're seeing every day. That's really only going to work in a democracy, in a society where there's freedom of press. I think in other countries that's that can be used by the government for their own means and ends. I, I want to ask, why does misinformation and disinformation go viral so quickly? Why are people so quick to believe it and spread it? So I think this is a mixture of algorithms and human biases. So obviously what happens um, is we, we tend to see, I, I describe these as the super spreaders on the internet. Now, in a good way, these people can be the fashion blogger or the, the analyst who's got some respect in an industry or a journalist or a politician or a celebrity. And these are the super spreaders in our systems. So in every platform, these people are cherished because their activity is so much more important than other people's activity because they're the people that create trends. So, for example, a celebrity might pick up a diet tip and spread that piece of content promoting the diet tip. And what happens is the algorithm sees that happening, takes that, accelerates its, its push, spreads it far and wide. So now it's creating a sort of an artificial viral spread. And then other people are going, oh, my God, it's a trend. I need to be part of this trend. And our human biases kicks in. We want to be part of that celebrities group. Uh, we already believe them. We're primed uh, for any content coming from that individual to be believed. And human bias takes over. And then the herd mentality jumps on this piece of content. So that's how virality happens. Um, a small piece of content is picked up by an algorithm. It's then promoted by somebody who's influential in the networks. And then the network itself has this sort of fear of missing out bias, goes, I got to retweet this. And a vast amount of links that are shared in the internet haven't been read by the individual. And what they're trying to do is instinctively in their brain, the heuristic, as they call it in psychology, is say, I, I got to share this. I got to be part of this. And so you can see this complex interplay between somebody who just says something funny it's picked up by an influencer. The algorithm picks it up and accelerates it. And the rest of the people watching this think it's all planned. <laughs> they don't know it's, it's actually machines at operation here. And they jump on it. So it might start out as artificial, but because of the hive mind, it can suddenly become a human infection. So that's the way virality works on platforms. If you took out the algorithmic recommendation, the whole thing would fall apart. And we would have a much more authentic... Um, you know, way of, of understanding what is really provoking people's interest and serendipity and all the good emotions about discovery and a feeling of solidarity. And, you know, those are things right now the Internet is not primed to um, optimize. And that's why we have this really empty kind of virality uh, that we see. Now, we could engineer it with recommendation systems. Um, I'm a big fan of Spotify. It doesn't always work, but I like it on a Monday morning where it says, hey, Mark, based on what you like already, let's help discover a couple of things you didn't know about. And you know that lovely moment when you see something, you go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I've been looking for. I think we can optimize the Internet for that kind of discovery. So there's two brain chemicals, one called dopamine, which is the one associated with addiction, which is how the system is built right now. There's another called oxytocin which is the, it's the sort of chemical goes off for a, a child, a parent with their newborn baby, with, you know, friends and family. And when you discover something that makes you feel good, and I think there's a way to optimize the internet for that second type of much more positive solidarity building virality that makes us all feel we're part of a collective family. Um, I know this sounds theoretical, but there's absolute brain chemistry behind this, uh, this sort of... Uh, disparity between these two systems what makes one person happy and, and you know gets their dopamine and oxytocin running will be different to what the other person on the other side of the world will feel i think it's different between intention and attention so when you're late sitting back scrolling you are literally about to be hijacked you're, you're actually letting yourself you're leaving yourself open to that whereas if you for example think about the way that we have in our in our phones we have the ability to control our diet uh, our journeys with GPS, our sleep patterns. Um, we have all these optimized apps on our phones that allow us to set an intentional goal. I'm going to walk 10,000 steps. I'm going to sleep eight hours. I'm, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to find a way to find healthy food in my neighborhood. These, there's, there's actually a part of the internet that's optimized for intentional benefits to ourselves. 
And that is the way our information ecosystem should be organized. So this is not theoretical. There is actually quite a bit of design in the way some of our apps, whether it's meditation or health or yoga, are designed for discovery and intentional betterment and fulfillment of our lives. And I think that's where information should be sitting, is in those apps, those kinds of experiences, where we're rewarded for absolutely setting a goal for ourselves to say, you know what, I want to spend 15 minutes over the next week learning about a culture I don't know about. Um, and I think that's something, an aspirational sense about information that we need um, to be developing and, and need to be developing those experiences and rewarding, like Spotify, as I say, are rewarded because I now feel, well, I'm going to pay $9.99 to subscribe, subscribe to Spotify because they're going to help me make my life better. And there is, I think, the emergence of a new information ecosystem based on that notion of discovery, um, of intentional use of the internet. And that's what we're seeing is the rise of a subscription economy and the rise of a creator economy based on things like donations and, and NFTs potentially and uh, people joining clubs. So there is actually, I think, the emergence of a real life example of what the information ecosystem could be completely transparent, optimized for discovery, optimized for intentions of people who want to live better lives. And I think that's something that uh, the purpose-driven technology movement right now is full of great examples. I mean, the first problem is we got to solve this information, push back and mitigate. But can you imagine what we can do with this technology to promote quality information, which is the second and I think more important part of the solution to this truth decay or information disorder, whatever you want to call it, that we currently experience. On a scale of terrified to hopeful, where do you stand? I think if you're not terrified right now, you're not paying attention. And if you're not hopeful, um, you, you just don't have an imagination. Because where, where I'm terrified right now is I think the problem of the bad stuff gets worse before it gets better. And, and this conversation we're having is obviously about deep fakes. We do not have the antidote. It is a variant, uh, a very, very toxic variant of the virus that we're already fighting. And it will create, I think, a contagion. But um, if I look at the hopeful signs, I see a lot of really, really good people uh, proving the model for a better system of promotion of quality content. So we have two battles going on right now. One is the battle that I'm involved in with Kinzen, which is to fight back this, this infodemic, to understand its next stages, to create immunity for ordinary people. And the second part, which is where it makes me very hopeful, is a new system of information distribution that rewards people um, for paying attention and for sharing in a much more positive, proactive way for their communities. And that is being built as we speak. And I see it every day, new examples of people building those kinds of information experiences. So, yeah, we have two levers right now. One is solve the epidemic, create a vaccine, and that's the quality information part of it. Um, so... I, I suppose I am an optimist, but equally, if you're not a pessimist about the current state of situation, our situation right now, you aren't paying attention. Uh, but in all of this, one thing we, we could screw it all up is, is the wrong type of regulation. And you mentioned already, we in democracies are those democracies that are developing. Um, we do assume freedom of information, but there's obviously another model emerging, which is surveillance states where the internet is essentially controlled by the government. And we will see, I think, the emergence of a kind of a new Cold War in the coming years, where there will be a battle for hearts and minds as to which of those two models um, produces better societies. And there's a lot of people I know living in places like China who feel, I've got stability, I've got wealth, um, I've got safety for myself and my family. I don't care if the government's looking at my internet this works well. And if I look at the liberal democracies, they're, you know, infected by disinformation. I don't want to be part of that system. So there is definitely, for me, the kind of broader geopolitical reality of this is probably among the scarier things. Um, the battle for hearts and minds for a, an open, decentralized and democratic web is not a done deal. 
we have to fight for that very proposition and therefore there's no complacency for people like myself who've been living this problem for maybe over a decade and for hopefully some of the policymakers that are trying to create regulation that does not suppress freedom of speech but does solve the problem of, of this information. So this is, I think, an important time, probably one of the most important times in, in you know, our, our democracies and I think it's up there with, you know, Gutenberg's Bible back in the 15th century. Every change in communication creates distress and up, upheaval. And we're living through a revolutionary moment in history. So that is, as Confucius says, a curse and a blessing. Um, choose your, your side at any one day. It certainly feels like that listening to you. Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. So how exactly do news organisations deal with deepfakes and can they ever be used for good? I spoke with Liz Gibbons, head of BBC World News, to see how an organisation like the BBC is handling deepfakes. Hi Liz. Hello. Perhaps we can start with what exactly you do at the BBC and and what your role is. So I am currently um, the head of news for BBC World News, which is the um, 24-hour global news channel. TV channel um, that is available um, across the world uh, and we reaches over 100 million people a week. Um, I've been in this role for just over a year, so I started um, in the, right at the beginning of the pandemic, which was obviously something of a challenge. Um, so what I, I'm responsible for the team that basically produces the, um, the the news output that you see on BBC World News. So with regards to disinformation specifically, how have things changed within the BBC in terms of you know how you tackle it and, and how you deal with with the spread of or you know coming into contact with disinformation? Uh, we're doing a great deal actually. So we we recently brought together major global and technology and publishing companies, including the EBU, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Wall Street Journal. Um, in a collaboration and we we work together on we've got an early warning system now in place to alert each other if we discover disinformation we worked on a joint online media education campaign to support and promote media education messages we cooperate uh, when it comes to giving information to voters during elections so there's a common way to explain how and where to vote so that's a cost that's the sort of cross industry initiatives that we've been involved in um, we also in 2018 hosted a beyond a conference called beyond fake news we hosted the conferences in Nigeria in Kenya in India and Brazil and the, the point of that was to bring together uh, key stakeholders, including government officials and policymakers, to engage in discussions about how to counteract fake news. And also, obviously, from on a day-to-day basis, uh, we fact-check everything incredibly rigorously. Um, and we obviously, we've always done that. And as a, as a, as a trusted media organisation, that's absolutely always been at the core of what we do. But clearly, the nature of the way that information comes to us has changed so much with the proliferation of social media and what we call user-generated content. So often, you know, if um, if a big story breaks, invariably it's somebody on the scene that has the, is, does the first draft of history, you know, gets that first picture or still or video, which obviously can be incredibly helpful to the news gathering process, but also comes with risks because it's not always clear that what you're getting is authentic um, and the process of authentication can take a long time and you have to understand the motivations for people sending things. So that obviously, we have a whole team of people in what we call our user-generated content area, who are experts in all of that. Um, we've also got um, a team called the Reality Check Team, um, and they are specifically tasked with, uh, you know, t- taking on some of the biggest stories and kind of getting to the truth of uh, and, and, fa- and fact-checking uh, things that have been said. And we've also got a, a disinformation team that works specifically on our, in the World Service um, area, and they are focused on finding stories where disinformation and misinformation has been used in a way that has, you know, changed people's lives. So when social media first emerged, it was more of a platform to uh, disseminate the articles and, and other sorts of publications. How has that changed? Given that increasingly people get their main source of news, how has that altered things for organisations like the BBC? I mean, obviously, we are on those platforms and, you know, and it's, it is very important to be able to reach people on, the, on those platforms. And that, but those platforms increasingly have a responsibility as publisher. I mean, the, the whole area of where are these online platforms publishers, you know, there's an cre- in, increasing amount of regulation um, for, for these 
um, platforms to regulate themselves and a lot of them are investing heavily in online journalism themselves and having to take down fake news and things so obviously we um and and there are kind of players in the market that try and ape and pretend that they're bbc news on these in these platforms and so on so with that and that's a that's a kind of growing issue as well um but obviously you have to be in those spaces to a degree um because that's as you say where a lot of people are consuming their um their media we've got um a bbc world twitter handle and facebook page that are followed by millions of people um, and we obviously direct people back and, and on YouTube as well. And we obviously direct people back to our own platform as well in order for them to kind of then be cut, to get into the sort of BBC environment and understand what we do and what we stand for. Let's talk about deepfakes now uh, and their emergence. And in some ways they can have a positive impact where the news is concerned. I think you guys demonstrated that a PB- BBC news presenter can, can be shown to speak different languages. But there's also a very dark side to them as well. So how are you guys approaching deepfakes? Well, as you say, I mean, as you say, the I suppose that what the positive side of what we were able to do as an organisation was to show, you know, in a very, very clear way how they can be manipulated. So, I mean, I'm not sure deepfakes necessarily in of themselves are a good thing, but I do think we were able to use our platform to illustrate, look, this is how quick, easily you can be tripped by, you know, a presenter seemingly saying things that he wasn't saying. Obviously, there's some other very, very famous examples of Barack Obama, I think, is a very famous one of him his voice being manipulated to say certain things um i worked on a story just before the US, uh, uk election um where a particular um group was work created deep fakes of all the main candidates for the U- uh, uk election and got them saying things that they clearly hadn't said and they were they were very very effective and you can see how people would be drawn in by them so uh, I think it's. I think what we can do as organisations is, as I say, with our process of verification to ensure that wherever possible we're not caught out by these deep fakes, but also, as you say, using our journalistic tool and our reach to illustrate the nature of what they are, how they work, and how insidious they can be, and what the dangers are. Can you elaborate on on more on what the dangers are? The, the ability to ma- manipulate technology to to that degree. I mean, we, we you can see what the potential circumstances of that are. If you're disseminating information or disseminating a speech by somebody and putting literally putting words in their mouth that they never said, I mean, that, that goes back to, I guess, where we started in terms of the potential impact of that in terms of how it can influence people's thinking and thereby a kind of society are, you know, of the, you know, the sort of plain to see, aren't they? That it's very, very dangerous. And um, there's a, interesting research around how people... Uh, interact with things that they see online and the degree to which they kind of believe stuff that they see and you know uh, interesting stuff around the degree to which if you see something several times or hear the same message several times then you kind of believe it almost without despite yourself and I think you know a lot of these people who are creating these deep fakes and in this kind of world of disinformation are you know understand the psychology of the people that they're trying to reach and are sort of trying to kind of hit some hot button issues with the sort of emotional response of things so you know that that that, that's why I think, again, to go back to the difference between disinformation and misinformation, disinformation can be very, very targeted, um, you know, to, to, with ill intent and really thought through in terms of what it's trying to achieve in a kind of broader context. In terms of trust in traditional media, has that changed over the years? There are studies to say that particularly the younger generation don't trust the traditional media so much. With that in mind, what happens when one is presented with all these deep fakes and, and are targeted by them and their trust in, in the verified traditional platforms is gone? I mean, it's a yes, it's a challenge, isn't it? And you, and you are right. There's a lot of evidence that, uh, to show that, um, you know, that trust in mainstream media organisations generally has, has decreased. And it's a huge challenge for us. And it's why, you know, we actually our metrics internationally on in terms of trust are very high. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I think that's exactly why without doing it in a way that I think it's the balance, isn't it, between not seeming preachy and kind of suggesting that there's a sort of, oh, there's them over us and we're going to tell you the absolute truth. I think there's a really interesting thing around how you do that. But also, but I do think being seen to do it and having ways and um, a light reality check. We also have got a programme called Outside Source, which runs on... Um, uh, weekdays on BBC World News Channel in the evenings in the UK, but it's obviously around the world, and that and th- that is very much deliberately set out to kind of um, often very very long explainers of a story, and where you know we're very very clearly setting out the kind of this is what X said and this is what Y said, and kind of almost showing your workings and making it incredi- incredibly clear 
what the process is of doing uh, of, of doing the journalism and also sort of putting the putting the process on the air and kind of making audiences understand it. I mean, there's a, there was a good example of this um, uh, in a, pe- a piece that we did, um, uh, a bit of original journalism that uh, the BBC Africa I team did a, a few uh, years ago, which was a programme called Anatomy of a Killing. And they used open source techniques to identify and reveal who killed four women and children in a, in a video. And they used open source techniques, which is um, peer-to-peer networks um, and crowdsourcing in order to sort of show how they'd pieced together all the information. And I think that what made that piece of journalism so compelling was partly because they did show what the process was and how they got to the place that they did. And sort of, I think if you're showing that, then it kind of, it can only increase the trust of the people that are seeing what you're doing because you're being very clear and open about how you got to the conclusion that you got to. Given how quickly these technologies are developing, does it feel like you're on the back foot sometimes or are there enough regulations in place to ensure that we deal with them in the right way? Well, as I say, I think the BBC has sort of taken a, a leading role in kind of bringing, I think, you know, bringing other organisations together and working together, I think, is a very, is going to be a key part of this in, you know, past, present and future. And um, as I say, the initiative that we brought together, I think, was a good example of, of, of where that where that can really work. Um, and as I say, and also just being, as we did with the, uh, the deep fake video, just being very alive to how things change and kind of you know, rather than ignoring it, sort of putting it out there and being journalistic about showing it. I think they are good good ways to sort of stay ahead of the curve. Do you think that if deepfakes become more prolific, that it might increase the trust in traditional media, that people might revert back to what they see on BBC? I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Uh, possibly. I mean, uh, poss- possibly, yeah. I mean, I think um, yeah, it's very hard to know, isn't it? I think the, the degree to which... Um, the proliferation of disinformation. I think you're sort of asking is it the more disinformation disinformation there is out there, the kind of better it is for the mainstream media. I mean, I guess I would hope so. And I think, but all we can do is sort of be in the, you know, stay true to our values and kind of be clear about calling it out when we see it. How can we know who to trust? Uh, well, obviously, I would say that you can trust <laughs> trust the BBC and trust. I mean, there is again interest. There's interesting stuff around this, isn't it? I know that there were some social media platforms that ended up putting a. Uh, a kind of kite mark of trust didn't they on that and then that uh, I think there was some suggestion that that made it worse almost what well, I'm not quite sure where so a lot of social media com- com- companies are on that but I mean you know we are we are we absolutely stand by our reputation and uh, yeah we, we're known for what we do which is being which is providing trusted 24-hour news I think having having many people having journalists all around the world in many places hugely helps I think having a kind of a big global footprint and a team of very very experienced journalists and also particular parts of the organization that are dedicated to looking at disinformation and misinformation is the future and I you know I I feel I feel actually very very um confident about our future in that space I think as I say our trust metrics are holding up in a very very difficult difficult environment and I think people understand what the BBC stands for and what we're trying to do I'd like to thank both Mark and Liz for their time. And thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.